You should have a handout inside your bulletin. If you didn't get a bulletin, go ahead and raise your hand and someone will bring one to you. We are continuing our study in Ephesians chapter 4. And we've come to, to verse 17. Let's, let's pray together before we take this time in God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for our church. We thank you for the unity that we have in you. Lord, we're thankful for the gospel this morning. I pray that, that as we study this particular passage in Ephesians chapter 4, that you would cause our hearts to be even more thankful for the gospel, for you, Lord, for you, our Savior, and all that you have done for us. And I pray that the, the fruit of that would pour forth in our lives, Lord, and out of our lives of, of worship and desire for holiness and righteousness and honoring you with every aspect of our lives. You're worthy of... of of us giving our lives to you as a living sacrifice. And I pray that that would be um, where every one of our hearts are at. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I just prayed, I, I, I pray that for you, as it has for me, as I've been studying for this morning's sermon, that it, it would cause us to, um, to truly be thankful for our Savior be thankful for the gospel and that we would find ourselves just wanting to live for him with everything within us we're looking at at chapter 4 verses 17 through 24 and so let's read it in its entirety and then we'll we'll begin to study it ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 this i say therefore and testify in the lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. When we approach God's word, we know that, that the pages of scripture are truth. Um, this isn't something that Paul simply wanted to write to the Ephesians. This is a passage of scripture that has been inspired by Almighty God with absolute perfection. It's important for us to understand that as you you go and, and look in Scripture that God tells us that His Word is the very breathed Word of God. It's perfect. Every jot, every tittle, the smallest little parts of God's Word is in absolute perfection. And God tells us that His Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. doesn't matter how we, we came in this morning as far as um, you could come in with just the hardest of hearts. And yet God's word has the ability, as his Holy Spirit works his word, to just cut right through our hearts and to minister to us. This is the word of God here in Ephesians chapter 4. But it tells us about who man is. You hear people frequently say, well, to me, man is like this. Or to me, God is like this. Or... or, To me, the meaning of life is this. Or to me, I get to go to heaven this way. And yet, we don't get to decide these things. God decides these things. 
And he reveals them to us in the pages of Scripture. And there's those that would say, well, how do you know the Bible's true? And well, we've spent much time studying this in the past, but you could go through and see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies with incredible detail, laying out all kinds of things that would happen throughout history. And then you begin to study it and see that even hundreds or thousands of years later, it came about exactly the way God had said it would come about. In fact, you could go through Scripture and see that it is without error. And so when we see a description here of man, of what man is like prior to Christ, God is very clear on that. Scripture teaches us that we are sinners. That everybody has sinned. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and that sinful nature was passed down to each one of us and all man throughout all history. I put a couple questions here for us to consider this morning. The first one is, what is sin? What is sin? The response is, sin is any failure to obey or transgression against any law of God. Sin. Um, it's not just don't do this, but in Scripture we see God saying that we are to do certain things. And so it's both not doing what we're supposed to do and doing what we're not supposed to do. For example, in Matthew 22, there in your notes, in verse 37, it says that Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so you just read a couple verses like that, and it's not hard to see that everybody who is in this room is a sinner. Not one of us has ever succeeded in loving God with all of our, with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. And not one of us has truly loved our neighbor exactly the way that we would want to be loved ourselves. So we've sinned. Just take those commandments of God and you know that you're a sinner. First John 3, 4 tells us that whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So sin goes against doing what God's called us to do and sin is lawlessness. And not only that, but in Galatians 3, 10, just to give you another example, it says, for as many as are the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so, with the sin that we've committed comes a curse. And that curse is eternal separation from God and it, that curse is eternity in hell. Scripture's clear on it. There's those that would say, I don't, well, I don't, I don't believe in hell. I don't believe that God would send people to hell. And yet, Again, that's not something that we get to determine as far as the way God is to be. You could say, I don't believe in hell, or I don't believe hell is eternal, or however you want to look at it, but the bottom line is, is that if every prophecy that has been given in Scripture came about exactly as God had said that it would come about, then um, you, you are gambling in an incredibly foolish way to say that this one will not come about. Um, God's very clear on that. And so when we look at how serious is the state of man's sin, how serious is it? The answer that could be given is this. As a result of the sinful nature passed on to all mankind through Adam's sin, man is holy and continually inclined towards evil. There is not one righteous man, but rather the entire world is guilty. And it's impossible for man to please God. That's heavy. When you look at Scripture and, and you see the way that God describes mankind, the state of man's sin is incredibly serious. It's not something where we simply scraped our knee when we fell. It's not something that we're sick. It's not something that we just need a little bit of help. God gives us a picture that is entirely opposite of that. Let's look at a couple passages that describe the state of man's sin. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's God's way of seeing what man was like. 
he, he looked not only at what man was doing, but was able to look exactly at where the heart of man was, the intent of their heart. And as God looked at it, he says, it was only evil continually. God further describes man in, a, in, in Romans chapter 3, and beginning in verse 10, where he says, As it is written, and there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. And just stop in there for a moment. You, you may read this and think, I don't know about that. Why would God say that about man? I know people who aren't Christians, who maybe even are atheists, and they're good people. But, but, but the reason why you say that is because you've taken good and you've lowered it way down to compared to what your good is like. Um, but God tells us that if, if something is not done to the glory of God, that it's not good. God tells us that even our righteousness is like filthy rags in his sight. You, you could come before God with all the best stuff that you did in this life, and God says that you're still a sinner. Not only are you a sinner, but there's none that are righteous. Not even one. And, and you may think of people and say, well, that person was really searching. Really searching. And yet, in Scripture, God says the opposite, that there's... There's none that seeks after God. God tells us that the state of man is that all of mankind is running in a direction opposite of him. They may say that they're searching after God, but God says, when I look at their hearts, they're not. They're running in the opposite direction. They, they love darkness rather than the light. He goes on and he says, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So we see the seriousness of sin, don't we there? God looks and says they don't, they don't fear me at all. There's no desire to honor me. They run in the opposite direction. And every mouth will be stopped. The entire world will be guilty before God. There's those that would look and say, well, I think I'll be okay. When I appear before God, I think I will be okay. I think that he'll see how hard I tried. He'll see my circumstances. He'll see the cards that I was dealt, and he'll know that I did my best. And yet, God says something radically different. No, you, you will be in such a place where every mouth will be stopped. You're not going to be in a place where you're going to be able to... to sell yourself to God and work your way into heaven as far as being able to manipulate and plead your case. God just says your, your mouth will be stopped and the whole world's guilty before God. In Romans 8, it tells us this. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it takes it even a, a, a step further to say, for an unbeliever, they cannot please God. Nothing they can do can be such where God looks and says, okay, that is amazing. That is something that just earned your way into heaven. God says, no, you're, you're guilty and you cannot please him. So, there is a seriousness to sin, and there are incredible consequences of sin. Now, as we look at our passage this morning, in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19 to begin with, 
it teaches us about some of the ramifications of sin on unbelieving mankind as they live in this world. And so here, Paul is, is, is speaking to the church here. But he wants them to understand the ramifications of sin. The Holy Spirit wants us to understand the ramifications of sin. And this is just those ramifications that are found in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. There's many more, but let's focus on these this morning. To begin with, it says this, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. And so we, we begin with, with recognizing that he is saying, this is something that I am testifying in the Lord, meaning that this is the very words of God. This is what God has given to all of us. That as Christians, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Okay. So as believers, the call is going out to, as a result, therefore, as a result of all that God has done for us, the way in which He has saved us, the way in which He has made us alive, the way in which He has blessed us with the Holy Spirit, the way in which He has made us a part of the body of Christ, the way in which He has done all that He has done for our salvation... That we as believers should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. It's a change that has occurred in the believer. Radical change that's occurred in the believer. And as a result, God is saying to his people, the church, you should no longer live like the world. You should no longer live like unbelievers live. It's a change that has occurred in you as a result of God making you alive, as a result of God saving you, as a a result of God giving you the gift of His Holy Spirit, making you a new creation in Him, that you no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. We are to be different than unbelievers. We're not to look like the world. This is God saying to his people, if you're saved, if your faith is in me, if Holy Spirit's come and taken residence in your heart and you've been made a new creation in me, don't live like the world. Don't be in a place where you're indistinguishable from the world. Don't have it be where the world's culture has such an impact on you that the way in which you live is based on, well, the world does this, and we don't want to seem to be that much different. Therefore, let's just live like they do, and we'll like make minor adjustments because we're Christians. The plea that is going forth is, don't live anymore. Don't walk anymore like the rest of the Gentiles walk. And the word Gentiles there... It's being used with reference to unbelievers. Don't walk like them. Don't live like them. Incredible dangers that come with that. Think of Lot, where Abraham comes to him and tells him that he could choose whichever way he wants to go. And the scripture tells us that he, he, he looked towards Sodom. He went from looking towards Sodom to choosing that area as far as the area that he would take. And then he set up his tent towards Sodom, still outside of Sodom. But then he went from there to living in Sodom. He went from there to ruling as a leader within the gates of Sodom. And he became indistinguishable from them. Things that took place where there's just incredible wickedness. The angels arrive there and warnings go forward. And you see Lot being in a place of, as these men are, are banging upon his door to, to ask them to, to, for Lot to give them these angels so that they could know them and to 
be with them in a sexual way. Lot offers up his daughters to them. I mean, you, you would think like just everything in you would want to protect your daughters. And yet there is such a perversity there within Lot as he's there within that culture that he comes to that place. But then, then it goes further than that to where the call is to leave. God is going to destroy this city. And he still lingers there. Even when he's called to leave, he doesn't leave. To where it comes to a place where the angels have to grab him by his hand and his wife by her hand and the daughters by their hand and escort them out of the city. The son-in-laws think that Lot's joking when he says the warning that is to come and that God's going to destroy the city. But there's so much of becoming like the culture that even his wife, when she's told, when they are told not to look back towards Sodom, she looks back and Scripture tells us that in judgment she turns into a pillar of salt. She's judged. She's put to death. There's a seriousness of, of, of sin and, and you see a lot there within the culture where he's so comfortable that doesn't want to leave, so comfortable that his wife looks back with longing eyes towards Sodom, not wanting to leave, and she's judged as a result of it. God tells us that we are not to be such that our lives look just like the world and how they live. Rather, it's the opposite, isn't it? They shouldn't no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Now look at how it describes it. In the futility of their mind. Futility or the vanity or the pointlessness of man's mind. Now that's God describing the unbeliever. Pointlessness in the way in which they think. Romans 1.18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Push down the truth. Suppress the truth. They want to live for the things of the world. And, and God says that, that His attributes have been clearly known to them, but that the way man's mind works as an unbeliever is there's just this constant pushing down of the truth. against anything that is of God or righteous. And so he begins by saying, don't be like them. There is a way of thinking that is just futility, vanity, pointlessness. It goes from there to saying, having their understanding darkened. Their understanding is darkened. The way in which they see things, they don't see it with clarity. They think that they do, but they don't. Romans 1, 21 through 23 says this, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. This is just God's description of who mankind is and just says, although they knew me, they didn't glorify me as God. There was no love for me. There was no desire to honor me. They weren't thankful at all. The unbeliever was not thankful at all. But they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They professed to be wise, but God says in reality they became fools. They thought that they had reached this, this level of intellectualism that they were so wise with the philosophies of the world, with their science, with all their religious beliefs, they, they thought that they were so wise, but God's picture of them is 
They thought they became wise, but in reality they became fools. There's those that could read a passage like that and say, who is God to say that they're fools? These are incredibly intelligent people. But God says what they did was they changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You could go and, and see the worship of nature all over the place, or you can find the worship of little idols. You could have people look at the beauty of God's creation, incredible waterfall or majestic mountain, seeing what God created, and their response is, isn't nature grand? And God says, they, they exchanged That's what they've done. The incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. He goes from there and says, being alienated from the life of God. Again, the unbeliever. Being alienated from the life of God. There's a deadness to the things of God for them. The unbeliever is totally separated from the eternal life that's given through Christ. They, they are foreign to the life that the Christian has in God, to where God says they're, they're truly dead in their sins and their trespasses. There is an ignorance that's in man, as it continues to say in our passage. Because of the ignorance that is in them. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on this section, says this, Having really attained a mature understanding of the things of God, then a believer is not going to live like the Gentiles, who are ignorant of the things of God, who don't have God in their thinking. Their thinking is not informed by divine revelation, and they don't have the perspective of eternity that is given to Christians in the Word of God. The pagan mind is never theocentric or God-centered. The Christian mind must be theocentric. God must be at the center, informing the understanding and shaping the opinions about everything. And so when you think of the difference between believers and unbelievers, the unbeliever is not thinking about God at all. They're thinking of how does this affect me or how does this make me look or what's the best thing in this very temporal time that we have. For us as Christians, though, there's a difference. The difference is how do I honor him? How do I please him? He's done everything for me. He's forgiven me of all of my sins. He died on the cross for me. He's given me his righteousness. He's given me eternity in heaven. He's given me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's given me his Holy Spirit. He's given me the church. He's blessed me in all kinds of ways. I want to live for him. I want to honor him. The singing of praises to God for the unbeliever is just foolishness to them. But the singing of praises for the believer is, I just want to adore him. He hears me. He's in my midst. I pray to him. I depend upon him. I want to seek him in the pages of Scripture. The way in which we think is God-centered. How is God pleased? How should we live in light of all that God has done for us and all that he's called us towards in Scripture? There is a difference for the believer. We are theocentric. We are God-centered. It is God that informs our understanding and shapes our opinions about everything. About everything in this life. It is, what does God say? What does he say in this word about this? I just want to please him. I want to honor him. I'm not my own. I was bought with the very precious blood of Christ. As a result, I want to live for him in every area of my life. I don't want to walk like the Gentiles walk. I don't want to walk like the unbelievers. I don't want to be such that my life just mirrors culture. I want to be in a place where he is my authority, and I want to honor him in every area of my life. It's God who tells us that The unbeliever has ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. 
2 Timothy 3, 7 tells us this, that they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's a blindness that's there. They don't see the things of God. They don't want to please Him. They don't care what He thinks. They don't care what He's done. They don't care what His Word says. They just want to do things their way. God says that the way in which man thinks is, is they do whatever is right in their own eyes. But the last thing they want is to be under the authority of the creator of this universe. From there, our passage goes on and says this. Who, being past feeling, meaning that they are beyond feeling or they're callous. They, they've lost all sensitivity. There's no sense of pain when sin occurs. And that man, as a result, goes after everything that is impure. It says in our passage here, being past feeling, have given them so, themselves over to lewdness. This is God's description, again, of mankind. They've given themselves over to lewdness, to things that are impure, sinful. And then even greater extremes of impurity. He says here, he's given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So there's a desire to just do more and more impurity. It started out as, well, I'm, I'm just going to mess around with this to that doesn't satisfy enough, so I'm going to go to a further extreme, and that doesn't satisfy enough, so I'm going to go to a further extreme. And God says there's just no restraint. It just continues on, and they just do whatever is right in their own eyes, and that's God's description of man. Man works all uncleanness or impurity with greediness. This is the description that's given as far as as a result of sin, this is what man is like. This isn't just our church's view on this. We've come to Ephesians chapter 4, 17. This is where we've been studying. We're just going through the next passage of Scripture, and God gives us a description of this is who man is. But what about the believer? What does Ephesians 4, 20 through 24 teach us about what God has done in the life of the Christian? In our passage, it tells us, but you have not so learned Christ. As a Christian, you think differently. It's not just that you've simply learned about Christ, but you've learned Christ. You've heard him. You've been taught by him at salvation. John MacArthur on this section says this, Salvation is not a matter of improvement or perfection of what has previously existed. It's a total transformation. The New Testament speaks of believers having a new mind, a new will, a new heart, a new inheritance, a new relationship, new power, new knowledge, new wisdom, new perception, new understanding, new righteousness, new love, new desire, new citizenship, and many other new things, all of which are summed up in this newness of life for the believer. We think radically different on all these things. And so Paul, in speaking on this passage, says, you have not so learned Christ. The way in which you think is totally different because you know Him. You know Christ. You know our Savior. And as a result, there's a radical change in the way in which we think. He says, if indeed you've heard Him, but taught by Him. And we have. We've heard Him in the pages of Scripture. But the passage here is talking about one single moment that took place. And so, with that, we believe that this passage is saying, you've heard him, you've been taught by him in the same way that Jesus, as the good shepherd, has gone after you. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. 
You've heard him. As Christians, there's a difference. As the truth is in Jesus. 1 John 5.20 says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. We know the truth. Now, as we speak on these things, it may sound arrogant for us as Christians as far as, well, we have figured all these things out. Please know that's not what is being said here. What's being said here is that we know truth because God has revealed truth to us. We know truth because God has done this incredible work in our hearts. We've heard of him because his Holy Spirit spoke to us. We've been taught by him because God is the one that took eyes that were blind and made us able to see. We see things as radically different than before because of grace. Because of the kindness of his Holy Spirit, we're able to see things as far as, no, these are the things that dishonor God, and these are the things that honor God, and this is what God has done for us. And I am a sinner. I'm in need of grace. I'm in need of a Savior. I'm in need of salvation. I'm in need of one who, who, whose blood has been shed for me as a sacrifice. I'm in need of a foreign righteousness. I'm in need of a God who rose again from the dead, therefore I could also rise again from the dead. I'm in need of one who will make it so that I could be sealed for the very day of redemption. I'm in desperate need of him. God is the one that has done this within our minds, in our hearts. We know truth. Because the perfect truth is taught in Scripture. And the Holy Spirit has used that truth to pierce our hearts. Christians, you know when that took place, right? You know there was a time where your heart was far from God. And you know that God did a work in bringing you to salvation to where you were able to see, I need a Savior. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. You're able to see the gospel. You're able to see that Christ is God and that he died for you. It was God that did that. And so the Christian no longer acts as he once conducted himself. Our passage here says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful Lust. You put off these things. You see that there's a change from the old man to the new man, right? Galatians 5 talks about that quite a bit in verses 19 and following. It says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the way in which we once conducted ourselves. But the fruit of the Spirit is something different. The next verse says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There is a change that has occurred in us to where we are no longer living according to the flesh of all those old things, but the fruit of the Spirit ought to be in our lives to where there's a change that takes place because God has done this in us. So don't walk. Like the world walks anymore. The Christian is renewed in the spirit of his mind. Our passage tells us this and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Have there be a renewal that takes place, a change that has occurred. We see that. 
Titus 3, 3 tells us this, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, do you see why a passage like this makes us love Christ, our Savior, and the gospel? We ourselves, every believer here, you also were once foolish. You also were once disobedient. You were deceived. You were serving lust and pleasures. Doing whatever was right in your own eyes, right? Living in malice and envy. Hateful. Hating one another. But something changed. And it was the kindness and the love of God through our Savior that appeared towards us. It's not by works of righteousness. It's not by us doing all of these things to earn salvation. But according to His mercy, He saved us. It's mercy. We're here this morning as believers because of His mercy. But He's done something. Washing of regeneration, making it so that there's a new birth that has occurred. You're a new creation in Christ. There's this radical change that has occurred. You becoming a Christian. The change that occurred in you who were dead in your sins and trespasses, becoming a Christian, is way bigger, is far greater than any other change that you will ever experience in this life or in all eternity. I mean, when you die and you are buried and there's a going up into heaven and there's a body that is resurrected and you given a new body and all that will occur for you, that change that occurs for the believer is nothing in comparison to you who were dead in your sins being made alive in Christ. There's a radical change that has occurred for you. And it wasn't because of works of righteousness, which we've done, but it was according to his mercy that he saved us. This renewing of the Holy Spirit that has taken place. So for the Christian, we're able through the Holy Spirit to put on the new man which was created according to God. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. A newness of life. So in our passage this morning where it says, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God. There's to be a difference. You're to take off the old stuff that God has removed from you and not live like the world lives anymore. But put on the new stuff, the new coat. God has changed you. So you're no longer to wear the stuff of, that was all about the world, but there is fruit that is to be there in your life and changes that are to be there as a result of what, is God, what God has done for us in true righteousness and holiness. Romans 13, 12 through 14 says this, The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. As in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Do you see the calling of the Apostle Paul to the church here? There is a call to walk in a way that is different. You're not to be like you were before you were a believer. 
There's to be a radical change in the way in which we live. Our Lord before was whatever we wanted to do, right? Our Lord now is the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of this universe, our Savior, our God, the one in whom we want to please. There's some of you who may be here this morning, and this message is exactly for you. Because the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart, saying, right now, you are walking like the world walks. You're living like the world. You're endorsing the things of the world. You flirt with the things of the world. You embrace the things of the world. You treasure the things of the world. You think more about stuff, things, possessions. Your God is your health, or your God is another person. But as a believer, you can't live like that anymore. Our God is Christ, our Savior. The plea here is don't walk as the rest of the Gentiles or unbelievers walk. The opposite is the case here as far as for the believer. See, for the unbeliever, it says, in the futility of their mind. But for the Christian, there is no pointlessness to the way in which we think. We have the very words of God. We have truth. For the unbeliever, their understanding is darkened. But for the believer, God has made it so that we're able to see more clearly than ever that we are to please Him, we're to live for Him, that He has saved us. We love Him. The unbeliever is alienated from the life of God, not for you as a believer. You have eternal life. The unbeliever is ignorant, but not for you. God's Holy Spirit has revealed to you in the pages of Scripture truth. The unbeliever has blindness in their heart, but not for you as a believer. He's taken your heart, which is a heart of stone, and he's given you a heart of flesh. He's made you able to see as well. The unbeliever was past feeling, numb, callous, but not us. There's conviction for sin, isn't there? Desire to please him. The unbeliever has given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but not us. Their desire for purity and holiness, righteousness, living for Him. And it's because what, is God, what God has done for us. The good news this morning is this. If you came into the church this morning as an unbeliever, and this describes you, I love that the Holy Spirit is able to make your heart change this morning. Not by the cleverness of preaching, not by the brilliance of your mind, but according to his kindness and his grace, he's able to change your heart and make you able to see that you need a Savior and that your Savior is Christ the Lord. And you can follow him all the days of your life through his enabling. He can renew our minds and make us think radically differently. God does that work. God can make it so that the way that he describes man is no longer you at all because of the changes he could do in your heart. But for the believer here this morning, God help us to listen to what the Holy Spirit speaks to us in Ephesians chapter 4. May we not be conformed to this world, to this culture, May we see the things in which Christ hung on the cross for. To pay the price that we could never pay. To be things that we abhor. That we don't want to participate in. 
We don't want to be like the world. We don't want to do those same things that we once did. We want holiness. We want righteousness. We want a renewing of our minds to where we think differently because God does that in us. It's a change that occurs. A love for him. A way in which we see things through the lenses of God to where it's just, is this pleasing to him? Does this honor him? Is this what he's called us towards? Does this glorify him? Does this point people towards Christ? Does this show people that he, Christ, is worth more than anything else this world can offer? We adore him. We love him. We want to live for him. We'll give ourselves entirely over to him. And we won't walk like the world walks. There's a change that has occurred, and we want to give those things up entirely, entirely, because we want to live for Christ. I pray that that would mark our lives. He gives us Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 24, because there are times in the Christian life, and for probably many people here today, where there are areas in which we are walking like the rest of the world walks. And God's saying, don't do that. You've been changed. You've been radically changed. This is what God has done for you. Don't flirt with that stuff. Don't live for those things. Walk in a way that pleases him, that is consistent with what he calls us to in the pages of Scripture, what our Lord has called us to as far as the Christian life and thinking biblically and honoring him in the way in which we live. And the good news is this, is he will enable us to do these things all the way. But there's a firm, stern admonition here for each one of us. We've been saved by Christ. We're not to live like we once did. There ought to be a difference. There's those that will hate the light because they love darkness. But not for the believers. We love light. We love Christ. We love what honors him. We hate the things of darkness. Therefore, our lives go towards living for him and pleasing him. I'm thankful for the gospel because apart from him, every one of us would have continued towards darkness. But God saved us. He's changed us. And he'll finish the work he began in us. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I pray that that would occur in each one of us here at this church. That you would work in our lives, Lord, to just mold us more and more into your image. Give us hearts that are like your heart. Help us to see things the way that you see them. Help us to not love the things of this world. Hold tightly to the things of this world. Lord, may we hold tightly to you, the things that honor you, the things that please you. May it never be said that we walk just like the unbelievers walk. And I pray that if there's those here this morning that are walking that way, give us the heart and the ability to flee those things in Walk in a way that honors you most. You're worthy of us living totally and completely for you. And I pray as a result that you are glorified and that we find great joy in you. Now, Lord, as we sing praises, may we sing praises as those that have been saved from all of these things and those who love you above everything else in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.